Hello, my name is Josh Fulton. I'm an associate professor of history at Moraine Valley Community College. First off, I wanna say thank you to my Dean, Dr. Wally Franzik, for the opportunity to be able to do an event like this, as well as to Dr. Troy Swanson, who runs the library, who gave me the opportunity as well to present here today. I know this kind of presentation is in some ways uh, a, a newly becoming normal reality in 2020 and 2021, but I think it's important for us to have these kinds of conversations. Our topic today is the idea of Confederate monuments, their history, and whether or not we can or should make connections between constructs of history, race, and what historians now for decades have been referring to as a lost cause. Now, I should say that there is a, a quite a great deal of historical scholarship on this from many prominent historians and wonderful writers. So it, I would be remiss if at the beginning, I did not say a great thank you to the wonderful work of all of these individuals, Dr. Keisha Blaine and her work with the Charleston syllabus and many other writers with that, Dr. Adam Domby, Karen Cox, Carrie Lee Merritt, Gary Gallagher, and of course, David Blight. All of these professors, doctors and scholars gave wonderful contributions to the field of the lost cause of race and elements of racial violence. And there again are countless others. In the last few decades, we've seen different discussions in the public eye and especially on social media about aspects of racial violence as they've related to things like Confederate monuments. Now, some of us, depending on where we grew up, we might have more experience with this and more connections to this than others. I grew up in Illinois, just outside of Chicago, where there were no Confederate monuments in my town. There was an old artillery piece uh, from World War II that had been put up there after the war uh, by the, the local VFW, but that's it. So again, much of this is a discussion that some feel greater connections to, others not so much. But that's kind of what we're gonna tackle here. We're gonna to try to describe the lost cause, how it centers our understanding of these modern conversations about historical monuments, about race, about what are or what is the purpose of monuments anyway. We're gonna talk about the myths of the lost cause because there's quite a lot of them, sorry. Uh, and what we're gonna to try to do is really look at the dynamic of what monuments are, what is or what are they intended to accomplish, and then how should we think about them? Because let's think of it. Monuments exist largely everywhere. If you go to a sports stadium, there are monuments to different players. Uh, if you go to different countries, right, there are monuments to different battles. And so I want us to be thinking about, as we kind of go through this, the question of what is the purpose of a monument? It is, it, is it intended to acknowledge or is it intended to glorify? And if it is intended to glorify, what is the nature of that glorification? What is it glorifying? If we go back to that sporting metaphor, if we go to that sports stadium and find monuments to different players, largely they don't put up monuments to individuals they don't like. So we need to be cognizant of the fundamental purpose of them in order to understand the environment around their construction and why many individuals have fought so hard to remove them as well as to maintain them. So let's get into it. All right.
this is not a new story. Despite what Twitter, TikTok, or any other form of social media may tell you. Issues of race, issues of racial inequality and violence have been a part of the American story since our founding. However, the last decade or so has seen an increase in very difficult discussions centered around aspects of policing, aspects of racial inequality, of institutional violence and brutality, and elements of the construction of whiteness as well as racial privilege. Now, for the purposes of our conversation, we're going to be centering this discussion again on iconography as it relates to the Confederacy and as it relates to monuments to that end. Now, after the American Civil War was over, broadly what we're talking about here is that former Confederates, as well as their families and those who felt common cause with them, sought to be able to maintain their understanding of what that all was about. Flags, elements of racial inequality and segregation, right? This type of high-level iconography has also played out, of course, across American society. What I'm saying is that those who sought in the aftermath of the American Civil War to continue this prideful near deification of the Confederacy did so not only in monuments, but across a wide-ranging part or series of parts of American culture. So, for example, film. We can see this kind of lost cause, this kind of embrace of racialization and of whiteness and white supremacy through films like Gone with the Wind, through earlier films like Birth of a Nation. Overall, the ability of those who put forward the lost cause have been incredibly successful in their endeavors. They have been incredibly successful in attempting to win, really, a battle of historical memory. All right, so this is a stock image, right, of a couple getting married, uh, part of a couple getting married on a plantation. And this is one of the things, or one of the sort of examples that I, I want us to be thinking about. Our understanding of the American Civil War in many ways in the 21st century is largely skewed. The sad reality is that the lost cause movement has in many ways won out, right, through large portions of the country. Their view is a propagandized understanding of American history. Their vision of what the Confederacy was and those who enabled it has come to form a normalized understanding of what life was in the 19th century across many parts of America. So, given how successful that is, given how successful many individuals believe it to be, how they considered it to be or do consider it to be sort of their history without thinking, it is important for us to be able to deconstruct it and to understand that the reality is quite vastly different than what it is that they will put forward. To circle us back then to the idea of popular culture and space and how we misunderstand things. The term plantation means different things to different people. If we are to be looking at and thinking about the role of race in American society in the early parts of the 19th century, 
Plantations are not good spaces. Plantations are abject centers of carceral horror where enslaved peoples are brutalized generation after generation. In the 21st century, that understanding has shifted. More recently, scholars have worked to be able to try to reconstruct this within the public mind. But for many in the public, plantations, of course, have become these kinds of sites, where things like weddings, special events, brunches are to be held. I don't know about all of you, but I'm not that comfortable having a brunch in a place that used to be a space of carceral horror. This is the nature of that identity crisis. What one looks at here and sees as okay, others cannot but look with shame. And it's important for us to be able to understand that difference and to understand the difficulty of what the lost cause has done for us. So part of what we need to do then is, again, once we've defined this lost cause, is to be able to deconstruct it. We need to look at what really was reconstruction about, what was the post-war era about, and how can we then take that and use it to better be able to understand what we've been seeing around conversations with monuments in the last few years. Because if you doom scroll on your phone, like many of us do, that has been a very large part of this conversation on aspects of race. Now, 1865, Civil War comes to an end, okay? That conflict, of course, began over the issue of slavery. And when we look after the war, one of the key things for us to be able to do is to look at core scholars like W.E.B. Du Bois. Du Bois's work the souls of black folk is integral, I think, for us when it comes to understanding what's at stake with the post-war world. You have millions of newly freed, uh, formerly enslaved peoples, and Du Bois makes it abundantly clear what it is that they are striving for. Now, in this particular quote, which you can see, he's sort of proffering this image as somewhat of a gendered one in that he's speaking largely about men, but generally, I think it's an important image for us to be able to have, right? He writes in the middle about uh, black Americans. Uh, he wishes simply to make it possible for a man to be both himself and an American without being cursed and spit upon by his fellows, without having the doors of opportunity closed roughly in his face. He says at the outset, uh, in this, let's see, uh, in this merging, he wishes neither of the older selves to be lost. He would not Africanize America, for America has too much to teach the world and uh, Africa. He would not bleach his soul in a flood of white Americanism. Much of this struggle in the second half of the 19th century and before, of course, is a struggle for equity. For those who are purveyors of the lost cause, they don't accept the premise of Du Bois. The lost cause is a propaganda movement. It began in the waning days of the Civil War. Its leading idolaters, its leading purveyors, were largely former Confederates, as well as their families, and powerful veterans and family organizations that helped maintain their myths. 
it began in the context of Reconstruction. It began in the context of what Du Bois is writing about. And it extended to any number of aspects of Confederate and Southern society. So the Lost Cause just isn't about monuments singly. Those who would advocate for the Lost Cause would argue any number of points, such as one, Largely, the Southern society was perhaps one of the most open, welcoming, and freeing societies that existed in the course of humankind. Yes, enslavement existed, but to them, it formed a sort of tertiary part of the Southern story. Their view is that, well, aspects of racism existed all across the world uh, in the 19th century. Uh, so you can't say of course, uh, that the American South singularly embraced white supremacy, which nobody's saying that, but that's what they would argue. They would also argue, of course, that those who were enslaved, not only was this only a small part of Southern life, but that they were treated well, that in some ways, those who were enslaved liked it. Another aspect of this is the deification of leadership. So Confederate leaders, such as General Robert E. Lee, during and after the war, right, especially are elevated to this very, very, very significant status. Also, another part of the lost cause is an argument that the, the South was going to lose anyway, right? That the Confederacy was going to lose the war anyway, and that they still fought. So again, furthering this idea of the lost cause, you know, they were going to lose anyway, they were outnumbered, they, uh, the North had more resources, uh, but again, they still made this, uh, you know, sort of valiant effort. Uh, and so again, it only further, you know, emboldens or ennobles their cause. Now, if you want to, in the 19th century, get a message out about memory, get a message out about historical preservation that can help you to normalize and reinforce the whiteness that you're seeking to maintain in the aftermath of the war. There's a lot of tools for you to be able to do that. You're going to use, of course, again, these veterans organizations. You're going to use, of course, prominent politicians of their day. And in as much as we use things like memes, to be able to convey within the public space of social media sort of small acts of, of rhetoric and statement. While they may not have memes or that kind of social media, what communities in the 19th century do have is public space to put monuments. And they also have school textbooks and they also have curricula that can get rewritten. Now, it is important in deconstructing the lost cause for us to be clear about a few aspects of the story surrounding the American Civil War and its conduct. First and foremost, no matter what you know, perhaps a former social studies teacher or a, an uncle or whatever has told you. The American Civil War was over slavery. It is abundantly clear. The preponderance of evidence and resources lead historians to that 
clear statement. It is not something that is up for debate. Now, some of you may, if you are skeptical, be wondering, where is that information? There are a few places. I would look as a basic to the secession declarations of individual Confederate states. The question of the legality of secession, that's another story. That's another time. But if we look to those secession declarations, each individual state makes it abundantly clear that the primary reason that they are entering into this effort is because they thoroughly identify themselves and their communities with the maintenance of white supremacy and with the maintenance of the enslavement of individuals. We can look to the Confederate Constitution. We can look to the writings at the time, the diaries, the journals. We can look to the debates in these secession conventions. We can look to the newspapers of this era. It's over slavery. Now, again, for lost cause advocates, states' rights is the primary reason. Because for them, they wish to make a connection between what those who fought for the Confederacy did and the American Revolution. Right? Those who engaged in the American Revolution, those who engaged in the Civil War, right, they wanted to sort of say they're carrying on the legacy of the founders. They're carrying on the legacy of what they wanted to do. However, this is a war over slavery. Now, the question of when the war begins or why does it start when it does, you know, that's a little bit more political. That's a little bit sort of separate. Part of that has to do with the decline of the second party system, which governed much of the U.S. national party politics from the 1830s and 40s. By the time you get to the 1860 election where Abraham Lincoln wins the presidency, Lincoln is confirmation bias for many across the South that his election is indicative of a threat to their very homes, whether they own slaves or not, right? Whether they own slaves or not. Another component of this effort on the part of lost cause advocates, right, is this question or this statement that they were overwhelmed, right? They were overwhelmed. Yes and no, right? It took many years for Abraham Lincoln to develop an effective military strategy that would ultimately turn the tide in the conflict. And so for the first few years, victory for the United States, for a unified United States where the Confederacy you know, ended, was still part of the U.S., was not a foregone conclusion. One of the things that some scholars have looked to is if you look to monuments for different battles and you look to who constructed them, uh, some of those numbers are actually skewed because, again, lost cause advocates want to reinforce this sort of David versus Goliath messaging. Another aspect of the lost cause sort of process is that overwhelmingly, those who fought for this effort had no interest in the preservation of slavery, had no interest in discussions of racial politics or anything at all, that they were simply sort of hell-bent on rights and liberty, that this was all about principle. If we look, for example, to the Army of Northern Virginia in 1861, 
fairly sizable percentage of those Confederate soldiers, and they're all white, obviously, uh, a fairly sizable percentage of those Confederate soldiers, if they didn't own slaves, they lived with someone who did or they worked for someone who did. Slavery was endemic in the American South, and it was something like 93% of all Southern wealth. The capital economy that existed in the American South prior to the American Civil War ran entirely on the backs of enslaved people. Everyone was tied to it. Another component that lost cause advocates will put forward is that if you look, you know, just go to Google, if you type in things like black Confederates, you will occasionally see pictures like this. Now, Kevin Levin, uh, a teacher who has written a book about black Confederates, uh, is, is very instructive on this. Uh, this is also a myth. Again, Lost Cause advocates like these photos because for them it's confirmation bias, right? Don't you see, see here, Obviously, the Confederate Army was multiracial. The Confederate Army welcomed in uh, African-Americans to be able to fight against, you know, this oppressive union. Here's the thing. Yes, do we have evidence of U.S. soldiers engaged in the South witnessing uh, African-Americans taking part in construction of fortifications, right? Doing other kinds of labor. Yes. Are photos like this present? Yes. But if you look at the entirety of the federal government record of the Civil War, it's this big multi-volume, over 100 volume sort of work. They mention few encounters, uh, very few encounters with you know, these individuals. If you look at Confederate records, there is no record of the use of enslaved people as soldiers. There was a Confederate decision uh, to arm enslaved people. It comes at the end of 1865, at the end of the war. Maybe a few were enlisted and there is no evidence of them seeing combat at all. So largely, the view on the part of lost cause advocates that black Confederates served by the tens of thousands, again, there's no actual historical evidence that bears that out to be true. The individual who you see pictured here was what what Professor Levin, what Kevin Levin, and other scholars refer to as a version of a, a body servant or a camp slave. Uh, so white slave owners, such as this man here, uh, would quite often bring enslaved people with them uh, to, to camp, to battle. Uh, and occasionally those men would wear, uh, they would wear uniforms. Uh, and uh, their role was clearly, though, as a, a slave to that master. These are not soldiers, right? These are not soldiers. There is not an aspect of choice, right, that is involved here. Others who support this advocacy of the lost cause uh, will say, well, you know, some of these men, they attended uh, post-war veteran encampments. So on both sides of the war, 
so the veterans organization for uh, U.S. veterans, right, it's called the Grand Army of the Republic or the GAR, right? They've got posts all over. Uh, and then you have the United Confederate Veterans. They have these encampments uh, to mark the anniversaries of battles, the formation of a unit, this kind of thing. And occasionally these men would show up. But again, we need to consider the context. We need to consider the time. It's the second half of the 19th century. The rigid racial segregation of Jim Crow is, is growing. It is hardening. It is alive and well. Uh, and, you know, some of these men need to make decisions uh, about you know, the nature of their survival within that culture. Uh, and the, in some cases, they continue to attend and participate, uh, you know, making a choice uh, that ultimately does reinforce the, uh, the racial status quo of the era. Again, this concept of, of black Confederates is something that many lost cause advocates believe to this day. Uh, the Sons of Confederate Veterans, uh, a, a prominent one of these organizations, uh, actually has grade school curricula uh, where they, they put this out there as being historical fact. So it's important for us to recognize then that once the Civil War comes to a close, the first decade or two after the war is a period that is defined by many as a, a reconstruction period. The war is over. Southern states have, you know, sort of surrendered. Now the question is, how does the federal government set conditions to quote unquote, welcome them back in? And how do, uh, you know, individuals who were so at odds pre-war and during the war be able to set a process of equity? Now in the U.S., right, the federal government, uh, will partly be dominated after 1867, 1868 uh, by what you might call radical Republicans. Uh, they enact quite a great deal of civil rights legislation, such as the 14th Amendment, right, which says if you're born here, uh, you are a citizen and deserve it of equal treatment before the law, right, equity before the law. Uh, this will be the period in which the KKK, Ku Klux Klan, will, will rise. And the KKK, of course, is not the only uh, group the only violent group uh, across the South in this period. There are other forms of white rifle clubs with other kinds of things that, again, their goal is to violently reassert racial and social and cultural norms that existed prior, during and prior to the war, right, across the South. Enslavement itself might be over, but they are not going to allow, right, these white individuals who are part of the KKK, they're not going to allow any form of racial equity. They're not going to allow these kinds of forms of legislation to be uh, put forward uh, and to be actually enforced across the South. And their you know, commitment to those efforts and a lack of a commitment to it on the part of the rest of the nation is partly what, after the deals of the 1876 election, really leads to the death of Reconstruction. Right, This idea of a occupation and a process overseen uh, to be able to support newly freed, formerly enslaved people, right, that comes to an end. And so as this violence is being carried out, as this brutality is being carried out, former Confederates and their families, again, are, are working in these processes of remembrance, are working in these processes of deification. And they're only going to continue it as the years go. All right. So here is Robert E. Lee. 
Lee is perhaps the most famous Confederate. When we think of the American Civil War largely within our public mind, we think of Lee, we think of Grant, and we think of the battles that they fight back and forth across Virginia mostly, primarily in 1864, right? For many Americans, that's the essence of the Civil War. The Centennials in the 1960s, right, sort of uh, did this, right? Much of the National Park Service, you know, pre preserving battlefields, right, outside of Gettysburg and, you know, Shiloh and, and, and a few others. It's, it's devoted mostly to the idea of the war in the East. The war was all over. As Dr. Megan Kate Nelson, in her recent book, The Three-Cornered War, makes clear, there was a vibrant conflict in the West, and many indigenous peoples were a part of this as well. But Lee is who we focus on. So, you know, we should look at why. Those who advocate for the lost cause look at Lee because of his family connections to the revolution. Lee's father, White Horse Harry Lee, right, was a Revolutionary War officer. Lee is married into the family connected to Washington, right? His home was Arlington. And Lee was an incredibly pious man, right? There's a great emphasis that is placed on Lee's Christian heritage. So he goes to West Point, becomes a military officer, spends most of his life uh, sort of devoted to that. Their argument, of course, is that Lee had very little connection to aspects of enslavement. That Lee really, I've seen some that would argue that Lee didn't own slaves. Of course he does. Lee was actively committed to a white supremacist slave-owning society. But again, Lee is this supposedly very Christian man. One of his leading corps commanders, a guy by the name of Thomas Jonathan Jackson, who is often known as Stonewall Jackson as well. Similarly, with Lee in the first years of the war, 1861, 1862, and into the first half of 1863, up until about the Battle of Chancellorsville, where Jackson is killed, had great battlefield success, stunning battlefield success. It is these successes, it is their piousness, that in the aftermath of the war, lost cause advocates across the nation will look to. It is why they will be elevated as essentially great sort of battle captains, uh, great American battle captains, right? That if, if not for Jackson's death, it's possible that the Confederates might have won. That's a whole other sort of separate story, but this is part of the argument that lost cause advocates will make. So again, Individuals like Lee and Jackson formed the basis of many of the monuments that exist around the country. Why? Right? Partly because of their connections to these battlefield successes, their connections to the central core of themes that the Confederacy likes to hold up, of this military valor, of this connection to the revolution, of this Christian piety. For them, they sort of separated that. They'd make it devoid of issues of race, of issues of enslavement. And again, it's not just monuments. More recent lost cause advocates have put forth these kinds of views as well. 
I remember when I was younger and interested in history, I went to see the film uh, Gettysburg uh, in, in theaters in the early 90s. And later when I was in college, the prequel to it, Gods and Generals, came out. Gods and Generals is a very long film. It's based on a, on a book. And the film is supposedly based on the lives of these Confederate leaders. But again, it pushes slavery to the outskirts of the picture and places a central focus on the piety of Lee and Jackson and their supposed abilities as battlefield commanders. We need to look to organizations that prominently put forward the lost cause myth and helped to normalize it across American society. The best examples of that are going to be veterans organizations, as well as, especially in the first part of the 20th century, the United Daughters of the Confederacy. So if you have heard of phrases like UCV, UDC, or SCV, the Sons of Confederate Veterans, these are core organizations that helped to amplify the lost cause message and to help make it go viral. In the aftermath of the war, the United Daughters of Confeder the Confederacy at the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century, took up the mantle of deification and began a process around funerals as many of these Confederate veterans were starting to die out and began a campaign as well over the creation of monuments to place them in public spaces to be able to honor these key Southern leaders who were passing. Additionally, the UDC and their organized groups around much of the South and the country worked to be able to spread the message further through speeches, certainly, but also especially to children. So they created what they called the Children of the Confederacy. So think of it sort of like an after-school group, but entirely devoted to the lost cause. Uh, and what they did was they worked to create what they called a Confederate catechism, where young children across the South who attended this organization uh, would be taught the central tenets of the lost cause, all of the things that I've talked about. This is partly why, then, it is so able to effectively spread through generations and generations and generations. The image that you see here is a stock image from the, a textbook in the middle part of the 20th century. It is supposedly an image of enslaved people on a slave ship being welcomed to America. So again, Someone like myself or other scholars can speak about the difficulty of this, can speak about the clear inequality, the clear you know, factual inaccuracies that exist like this. But especially for young people and especially for, you know, if you kind of remove uh, any kinds of challenges, right? Many folks, you know, when you read uh, textbooks when you're younger, right, we take that as truth. We take that as literal truth. And it's hard to push back against that reality. So again, the UDC is successful in creating this mythology and furthering this mythology through school curricula, through textbooks, and even by supporting things like the KKK, the UDC was very much supportive of that, and museums, right? So there was a Confederate museums that were nearly shrines, essentially.
to the Confederacy. All right. In the first generations, in the aftermath of the American Civil War, former Confederates and their families worked effectively to create a climate to maintain the pre-war racial order and their use of historic preservation was intended to make clear to the public their understanding of that pre-war order and to maintain it as best they thought they could. So in many ways, then, the UDC and others, again, are working in concert. They're working in tandem with the other forces like the KKK that are operating at that time and throughout the next generations as well. Those in recent years who have advocated for the maintaining of monuments to the Confederacy, and let's be clear, those who were a part of the Confederacy took up arms against the Constitution of the United States, they killed Americans, and by other definitions would be considered as traitors, right? We are putting up monuments to those kinds of individuals. Monuments singularly on their own aren't history. You don't need a monument to know that something happened there. You don't need a plaque to know that something happened there. That is not a singularly necessary idea or singularly necessary piece in order to be able to maintain a message. The kinds of monuments that we are talking about are public forms of glorification. They are not non-political. They never were. These monuments were intended to clearly demonstrate a community's glorification of the realities of what the war was about. Now, generally most of these monuments, and there are quite a lot of them, uh, are going to come up over the course of time, right? So the first ones, you know, happened first years after the war, but it's really 1890s, early 1900s, where you start to see this explosion uh, of, of monuments. And this is the time period where you're going to see the construction of Monument Avenue uh, in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, this is the time period we're going to see monuments to Lee be put up everywhere. And you're going to see some that are to the common soldier for the Confederacy. Uh, but again, it's Lee and these kind of key figures. And again, in the 1950s and 60s, the other major growth of this is going to happen as well. In both cases, these are times in which uh, African-Americans and their supporters and allies are lobbying for aspects of racial equity, are pushing back against uh, the brutality that existed throughout society against them. Uh, and much of the response then on the part of others is to place up these monuments as a further reminder, okay? Opposition to them has existed for decades. It has existed for decades. It's just, it would have been perhaps even more violent for individuals to protest them, let's say, in 1910. All right. 
I think it's good for us to acknowledge a couple of things here. And so let's talk about maybe a few big important monuments or areas of these monuments, you know, as we bring this to a close. So again, there's at least over 1500 monuments across the country. There's probably far more, but you know, we're looking at well over a thousand. They are in dozens of states, all right? They are in dozens of states, something like 31 states. Virginia has the highest number. Texas is the second. And again, there are some that are in states that did not fight for the Confederacy. There are even some in Illinois. There are many places that we can go to learn more information about these kinds of monuments. Uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center has a big database. Uh, that would be a good place for folks to start if you are so inclined. So within the last few years since, say, 2015 and the sad brutality and reality at the um, murder uh, the murders in the church in Charleston, uh, or 2017, of course, and the, uh, the terrible uh, rally in, in Charlottesville on the death of Heather Heyer. Confederate monuments have become public spaces of derision and become public spaces for a national and public conversation about race and about its ties to the Confederacy and what these monuments really are representing. In Richmond, Virginia, the former capital of the Confederacy, there are any number of monuments. Much of them were along this sort of new construction at the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century, referred to uh, as, as Monument Avenue, right, as Monument Avenue. Now, some of these have been toppled. Some of these are now been taken down. Uh, but, of course, states as well have been looking uh, to be able to you know, pass laws essentially making it illegal, you know, for folks to be able to do that. But again, let's be clear. These are monuments honoring individuals who fought for a society that singularly sought to be able to uphold enslavement. We must acknowledge that fact. So here is the monument that formed part of the controversy in 2017. Uh, the riot at Charlottesville, the, the sort of rally at Charlottesville was referred to as the Unite the Right uh, rally, which saw the death of a young woman opposed to this. Uh, the Lee statue was actually put into a shroud uh, for a period of time. It had been dedicated in 1924 because of everything. And uh, in 2017, it was, it was shrouded in black. But because of a Virginia law, it was allowed to be opened up again uh, in 2018. Uh, and so it still is this hotbed and this very, uh, you know, very significant sort of aspect as well. Another core monument, perhaps for us to acknowledge that has formed a big part of this conversation is going to be Silent Sam. Silent Sam, uh, which opened in 1913, uh, and a key figure in that was a man by the name of Julian Carr, was supposed to be dedicated to the common soldier. Now, Silent Sam is on the campus of UNC Chapel Hill, uh, and Silent Sam was toppled uh, in 2018. And it's a, a good one for our purposes here in terms of discussing aspects of race in the Confederacy and aspects of race and equity, uh, and kind of the idea of what do we do with these kinds of monuments sort of going forward, which is in and of itself a whole other conversation. So industrialist Julian Carr uh, was a key figure in the construction of this and gave a, a stirring speech uh, at its dedication. Uh, and if you're someone who uh, struggles with words related to uh, sexual violence, I'm going to mention something here. 
Uh, Carr had been in the war uh, and stated that when he had come back to North Carolina, we had come back to Chapel Hill, that he had committed uh, a rape of a, a black woman basically on the spot or nearby, uh, and that he was directly tying this particular monument and the Confederate effort to his sexual assault that the purpose of the Confederacy was to maintain aspects of racially gendered power. Uh, and Silent Sam was uh, protested against uh, for many years, especially in the 1960s. Uh, there was some discussion uh, in the last few years uh, that the university was going to spend millions of dollars to basically cover it and you know, do other things. Uh, but again, it was toppled in 2018. Another example of uh, a monument would be another one of these Robert E. Lee statues. Uh, if you've ever been in New Orleans, uh, statues and monuments form a central part of the landscape of the city, the public landscape of the city, Jackson Square being a good example. That's a whole sort of separate discussion about Jackson and slave owning. The Robert E. Lee statue uh, was dedicated in 1884. Uh, and as well, it was sort of well-received through the 1950s, at least by whites. Uh, in the second half of the 20th century, more public protests uh, began to occur. New Orleans was an interesting seat of power in the 1870s during Reconstruction, and there was a fairly famous battle there. Uh, and it was removed, uh, the statue was removed uh, in the year 2017. Now, this is perhaps the largest of these monuments. Uh, and it's a sort of fairly interesting, you know, kind of mixed use thing. Uh, so if you've never been here, this is uh, the Stone Mountain Monument, uh, which honors Jefferson Davis, uh, the president of the Confederacy, Robert E. Lee, uh, one of the commanding generals, uh, as well as Stonewall Jackson, or General Jackson. Uh, so this was a monument that was begun in the first decades of the 20th century. The site itself, the mountain itself, and the top of the mountain itself uh, is incredibly prominent in white supremacist lore and KKK lore uh, because supposedly the second KKK was kind of reborn here in 19, around here in 1915. Uh, and so it was a place for Klan rallies and meetings and the like. Now, the efforts to construct uh, a monument like this, a sort of Confederate Mount Rushmore, uh, were sort of stymied in the 1920s uh, and then largely forgotten about. Then in the 1950s, during the time of uh, civil rights movements moving forward and receiving prominence, uh, the governor of the state of Georgia basically wanted uh, the state to kind of acquire this, uh, to be able to put up a monument to kind of make clear their views on the war and on you know, white supremacy and on maintaining segregation. So they do. Uh, they do. They purchase it, uh, and uh, this monument is constructed out of the mountainside, and uh, it's completed in 1965. Uh, now, today, you know, it's part of a big park. Uh, there's lots of mixed-use things. There's, they, they even do laser shows on it. That's a whole other story. Uh, but again, in many ways, it's symbolic, uh, kind of of uh, sort of the. 1950s and 1960s era uh, of, of the lost cause, and again, the use of monuments to be able to uh, put forward this messaging. All right. So overall, I think it's important for us to see how central these monuments are to understanding modern conversations of, of race, racial violence, and equity.
Thanks so much.